Okay, we're live. Good afternoon. Welcome to Ask the Docs, a Fertility Institute of Hawaii live stream. This month, we'll be talking about Polycystic Ovary Syndrome Awareness Month. Uh, and our topic is PCOS and infertility, seeking help and solutions. Thanks for joining us today. We've got a lot of great information to share with you guys. Uh, my name is uh, Dr. Carmone, and we have Dr. Fratarelli with us here. Dr. Goulet may join us in a little bit as well. Um, all right, so let's kind of get started with um, what is polycystic ovary syndrome? Well, polycystic ovary syndrome, or, or PCOS as it's commonly called, is really a misnomer. Uh, it's not a bunch of cysts on the ovaries. It, it's really a lot of follicles that people will have on their ovaries typically, but not always. Um, it, it's, you know, in general, a disorder that causes a multitude of symptoms for patients. And, and it's not this, every patient doesn't have the same symptoms, so it can be a little bit complex as well. Um, some patients will have irregular menstrual cycles, so it can, it can affect your hormone levels, uh, and so that you have irregular cycles or you're not, or you don't menstruate, ultimately you don't ovulate, that's one of the criteria. Uh, you can have lots of follicles on your ovaries with, but not again, not cysts, but just a higher number of follicles than should be average for your, for your age. Um, or you can have what we call hyperandrogenism, which is uh, elevated androgen levels in, in the blood. And, and that can be either a blood level that we find, or it can be manifested by other, other symptoms, such as uh, abnormal hair growth on certain, on certain parts of the body that aren't common uh, for either your ethnicity or, or, or other, other patients and your other you know, family members. Um, and this probably wasn't the best di best uh, definition of it, but you, you, would, would you like to add something to that, Dr. Carmon? I thought it was a really good definition, which is what I'd like to add, but I, I think... Um, it's, a conf it's, a conf it's confusing because it's not just a simple, oh, this is what it is. Right. You know, there, um, there are a lot of different theories to what PCOS actually is, where it comes from, um, and there are a lot of different ways to define it, which is kind of the tricky thing. There's sort of a constellation of symptoms. The truth is, is that it's probably more than more than one thing. Um, and depending on the severity of PCOS, um, there are different treatments that are recommended depending on the goals. But um, a few things to think about. So the main there's the sort of health risks, and then there are the implications to fertility. Um, it is extremely common, uh, depending on the definition that you use, about 20% of women will meet the criteria. So if you're one of those women, um, you are in very good company. Uh, and the very kind of um, basic criteria is that you have to meet one of um, three things. Right, so you, or two of two of three rather. So you have to have um, you could have either uh, lots of follicles in your ovaries, okay, or you could have um, irregular periods, or you can have lab evidence of um, hyperandrogenism, like uh, you know an elevated um, testosterone level, okay, or um, clinical signs of hyperandrogenism, like the excessive hair growth and things like that, that Dr. Fratarelli was talking about. 
and, and I didn't mention acne as one of those. One of those acne, right, as a clinical So if you have um, kind of two of these things, uh, you meet the criteria for polycystic ovary syndrome. Okay, if you only have one of the, these things, then technically you don't. Although I, I sometimes talk to patients about it and say, well, you may sort of be on that on that spectrum because um, the definition at times can be a little bit random. Um, the implications to pregnancy are that there may be some issues with trying to get pregnant. Um, the implication to long-term health is um, that you know, if sort of left uncontrolled, there may be higher rates of diabetes for certain patients. Uh, and there may also be um, higher rates of endometrial cancer. Uh, and again, this is mainly in, in patients who don't have regular periods and who aren't kind of doing anything to manage that. Um, and, and actually just to, just to stress that too, you know, the endometrial cancer risk, is, is for because people are not ovulating or not menstruating and shedding their lining. And so the way to mitigate that is to have regular menstrual cycles and typically for patients with PCOS that's birth control pills or some progesterone at a regular time interval or, or an IUD for instance. Um, one interesting thing about PCOS that I like to bring up to my patients um, I don't know if you guys know this about me, but I was um, an anthropology, you know, double major, like anthropology and biology. So one of the interesting things. I did not things, know that, really. You didn't know that? Okay. Well, you know, it was like, one of those liberal arts. On our podcast. Right. <laughs> there you go. Okay. I was an anthropology and biology major. Um, and so one of the interesting things about PCOS, and actually most diseases that have a very, very high prevalence, or they're very common, right, is that they're usually somehow beneficial or they were beneficial at some point. For example, um, you know, the, the, the big one is um, sickle cell disease, right? So if you're a sickle cell disease carrier, um, there are, you're less likely to get malaria, Okay, so because of that in the population, um, right, you know, it's, it's sort of propagated because people were less likely to get malaria. Similarly, cystic fibrosis, that's another kind of big one. People who are cystic fibrosis carriers are less likely to um, have cholera. Okay, so all these things which used to kind of benefit us don't benefit us much anymore, but it, it's already been kind of propagated in the population. Something like PCOS that is um, common, you know, 20% of women have PCOS, got, it's got to have some benefit, some evolutionary benefit. And it, it seems like the theory is that women who had PCOS um, may have been slightly less fertile. Um, and so, you know, not completely infertile, so they could still have children. But, you know, maybe back in the day, they were the women who didn't have 10 children, 20 children, and, you know, sort of die and all their kids starved, right? Um, so instead, they had smaller, kind of healthier families. And there may, because um, testosterone levels were higher, um, they may have had some benefit um, in terms of strength and the ability for physical activity, um, you know, back when that was really important for survival. Um, and so I didn't just make this up. This is written up in anthropology papers. Okay. Um, and so the thought is that, you know, there actually is some evolutionary benefit to polycystic ovary syndrome. Um, but of course now, 
And, and, you know, and that's why women who um, also develop diabetes with time, because there actually is a, a type of metabolism that sort of was favored um, during uh, sort of starvation periods and things like that, that aren't as favored today. Um, but I bring this up as it's, it's kind of um, can be kind of a neat um, thing to think about when you think about why uh, PCOS has been propagated in the population. Um, but that's, in that's today's day and age. <laughs> and I, think I, have heard, I have heard that before, but, but it's not something that's, uh, I guess it's common knowledge, right? Yeah, it, it's um, sort of an anthropology thing. Um, so regardless, though, obviously, we want to treat it at this point to help prevent some of those long-term risks. Um, so, and, and so, yeah. Well, I was going to mention some of those, you know, long, long-term risks, you know, you know, with, with, with PCOS, obviously, there's a, you know, it's, there's a hormonal imbalance, right? And so, you know, you have an underproduction of estrogen, you have overproduction of androgens, which cause the symptoms that you're seeing. Um, but then there, you know, there's a range of other endocrine and metabolic, you know, issues that patients can have that, you know, and you, not all PCOS patients, but there is a higher prevalence of being obese with, with PCOS, they'll have lipid issues, insulin problems, uh, glucose, you know, they'll have, you know, glucose um, issues where they will may develop diabetes or a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes and ultimately cardiovascular cardiovascular disease. So all of those things are, you know, risk for patients as well with PCOS. So when we see them for fertility, you know, those typically those issues aren't necessarily always addressed because they may not be manifesting those yet, but certainly that's something that, that they have to be concerned about as they, as they move along in their life. Yeah, and when welcome, I think- Welcome, welcome Dr. Goulet. Welcome, this is Dr. Goulet. <laughs> <Hello>. <laughs> Um, so when uh, when I think about um, PCOS treatments, I, I think the goals, um, the sort of immediate goals are extremely important. So there's kind of the long-term risk that Dr. Fratarelli was talking about, and then there's also the short-term, like, do you want to get pregnant right now? Um, and the treatment for these two things are pretty different. Um, and so if you are seeking pregnancy, um, then the path is quite different than if you're not, because if you're not, oftentimes the treatment actually involves potentially suppressing um, the ovaries a little bit uh, to try to get those those hormones in balance. Um, Dr. Goulet, did you want to talk about some fertility treatments uh, for PCOS patients? Sure. So with, with PCOS, a lot of times the eggs are stuck at the starting line. That's the comparison I make. And they just need a little bit of a nudge in order to grow those eggs so that um, our patients will have a cycle that they'll ovulate and then have the withdrawal of the menses uh, to about two weeks after they ovulate. We do have out on the market, very affordable, very effective medications that can be taken orally that do a very good job in the majority of PCOS patients in inducing that ovulation. And we call that ovulation induction. And so with those oral medications, historically, we used to use Clomid. Recent data has shown that letrozole um, may be a better medication for our PCOS patients. Uh, letrozole was initially invented as a breast cancer medication. So if you Google it, you might see all of the scary things that the FDA writes. It can cause bone pain and hair loss. And that's not really true uh, in the, the doses and in the um, 
how we use it for fertility. Um, so I, I, I caution my patients not to get scared when they when they hear that it's a breast cancer medication. Uh, we, it is an off-label use, but it is very good for our PCOS patients at growing that egg and, and leading to an ovulation. The majority of individuals do respond very well to either of those medications, um, but some individuals might also need uh, something more aggressive, such as injectable gonadotropins. And those are those fertility shots that would be dosed um, and, and given in an injectable pen in the belly over a course of time. Now with both of these medications, if we're doing either of these treatments, uh, they do have to be monitored. So we would recommend uh, ultrasounds in order to track the growth of the eggs because with PCOS, when my patients come to me and they say, oh, twins run in my family, what I'm thinking is it's probably PCOS that runs in your family and these meds can uh, stimulate the growth of more than one egg at a time. That's right. And do, um, yes. Um, yeah, just, just to add on that a little bit, I guess, you know, because, you know, patients oftentimes will say, how does Clomid or Clomiphene Citrate or Fomara or Letrozole, how, how do they work? And I think, you know, the easy answer for patients is, you know, they, they increase your FSH production in your brain, which causes, which allows the, uh, more, allows you to have that, have that follicle to grow. And, you know, oftentimes the way I explain it to the page, my patients is you have so many follicles in your ovary, your brain only makes so much FSH, but not enough FSH to go go around to spread out through that cohort of follicles that you have so that one can become dominant. And so we have to increase your FSH a little bit just to allow one follicle to become, become dominant. Um, and so that's kind of the way that the Clomid and the aromatase inhibitors or the you know, letrozole will work as well. Yeah. Um, in terms of the treatments, you know, the other types of fertility treatments like in vitro fertilization, um, intrauterine insemination, you know, those may also be needed for PCOS patients, but not necessarily, um, you know, with different criteria. In other words, um, if somebody is unsuccessful with the first line therapy for polycystic ovary syndrome, which is ovulation induction, we would move on to, you know, intrauterine insemination or in vitro fertilization um, in, in a similar fashion to anybody else who kind of doesn't carry the diagnosis. Um, when we're thinking of in vitro fertilization for some of the PCOS, the big thing we have to keep in mind is that, you know, patients with PCOS are much more likely to um, kind of overstimulate um, and potentially develop a syndrome called ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome or OHSS. With the modern protocols and medications that we utilize, severe OHSS is rare, even in patients with PCOS. But nevertheless, that's kind of more of a consideration for, you know, patients with a lot of follicles. You know, they, they're the ones that we kind of have on lower doses and maybe kind of keep them on those low doses for longer um, to try not to recruit quite as many eggs. You know, we don't need to get 100 eggs from anyone. Um, so we just want to get you know, a, a couple of good ones, right? Um, and usually patients with PCOS kind of do do well in that regard. Um, I wonder, you know, I, I think something maybe we, we've missed so far, maybe Dr. Goulet, you may want to talk about it, is metformin? 
Oh, yes. So metformin. So uh, and I know I came in when you were talking about the long term concerns about PCOS. But one thing that and, and so I'm not sure if you had mentioned the insulin resistance, but I'm guessing you probably did. We did a little bit. Very yeah. briefly, but, but yeah, feel free. Yeah. So so with with PCOS, we do see a, a very a significant number of individuals that also have some degree of insulin resistance or diabetes. And those uh, those medical comorbidities become more pronounced with time. So the older you get, the more likely you are to develop insulin resistance, glucose intolerance, and diabetes. And what we know is that, you know, if, if you're having prediabetes, that's not good for egg quality. And so treating with metformin can help improve your egg quality, but we also have studies that show that in conjunction with clomid or the letrozole, it can help synergize and help those medications work a little bit better. Clomid, by, or excuse me, uh, the metformin by itself, people had tried to use it as an ovulation induction agent, and it's not really much better than, than placebo, but if you, um, add it together with the letrozole or the clomid, we do see a little bit of a synergistic effect making the letrozole and the clomid more effective. And, um, and I would also add that, that you also, with the metformin, uh, we'll see a lowering of the androgen production, uh, production as well. So you'll see androgen levels that will decrease associated with that as well. And, um, so that may be another benefit of, of, fomar, of, of metformin. Yeah, um, there may be some benefit, um, especially for patients who are resistant to um, to one of the medications. But um, just to clarify, if a patient is ovulatory with um, with letrozole or Clomid or whatever, there may not be much kind of additional benefit to giving them metformin. It may be helpful to make patients more sensitive to one or the other if um, they're kind of resistant to it. Um, and I just wanted to address some of the questions and comments from our patients here. So um, one a viewer has said, uh, thank you for our daughter, Ellie, who is now six years old. Um, you're so welcome. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then somebody else here is asking, what is your opinion on using naltrexone to help with ovulation induction for PCOS. And so I want to comment that there are not a ton of data yet about um, combining that with agents for, um, for PCOS specifically. Um, but there are data for some of the other um, agents. One of them is metformin. Um, using that, it's synergistically with the other medications. And the other um, the other medication would be um, a steroid like dexamethasone, which uh, is very, very useful for patients who are resistant to, um, to Clomid or Letrozole. Any other thoughts about that? Okay. Um, let's see, what else have we kind of not gone over? Um, Common misconceptions or myths surrounding PCOS. I think the big one is that um, all patients with PCOS have to have irregular cycles, which is not true. We kind of talked about how um, you can have regular cycles and still have PCOS, which may um, still cause some, you know, little bit of ovulatory dysfunction or issues with hormones or egg quality um, because of the hormonal imbalance, even if there is regular ovulation happening. 
Um, another misconception is that all patients with PCOS are, um, are heavy or that you're going to cure uh, PCOS by um, losing weight. Um, that's, that's not true. So you may uh, alleviate some of the symptoms, um, especially surrounding the regularity of menstrual cycles, um, but you won't cure PCOS um, by losing weight. It's, it's not that that's not really um, even sort of part of the criteria, you know, for, for PCOS. Um, so just to clarify about that, um, you know, what else? <laughs> well, and you know, along those lines, I, I get a lot of patients that mention to me, oh, you know, this prior doctor suggested maybe I have PCOS because I am overweight. And I think that it's, it's, it, as you just said, it's not one of the criteria. And there is a lot of, I think, misconceptions where people assume, oh, because you're overweight, you, you must have PCOS. And that's often not the case. And so there, you can have problems ovulating that occur without having a diagnosis of PCOS. And they often get confused. Right. And I think there's a lot of intersection there. So I don't want to, you know, because there's um, insulin resistance, you know, it's, it's can be harder to lose weight. Um, and, and the hormonal imbalances can make things more difficult. Um, and so it's not that they're not associated with each other. It's just that weight loss may help with the symptoms, but won't be sort of curative. Um, it, there may be, um, there may be a spot here now for us to just mention that there are surgeries that used to be performed and that some people are still performing um, for, for PCOS, um, which uh, I feel like people don't really do anymore, but I think there are some physicians who are still offering it, at least as of a couple of years ago. Yeah, you know, those surgeries, the yeah. ovarian drilling, I, I feel like they're, they're not anybody's first first choice. I mean, I've done them, you've done them, we've all done them, I think, at, at one point in time. Uh, what this is, is it's a laparoscopic procedure where we put a camera in the belly and we take an electrocautery and we literally burn holes into the ovary. And it's been shown to make the ovary more um, uh, effective at ovulating. This is called ovarian drilling. The I think the instances where I've done them are usually because of insurance coverage, where insurance won't cover any other sort of fertility treatment or PCOS treatment, or they've tried other fertility treatments and they're not working, and it's the last resort sort of procedure. Here in Hawaii, we're very fortunate. We have very good coverage for fertility treatments, so we're often not needing to resort to uh, such invasive procedures such as right, ovarian drilling. I mean, anything that really damages the ovary is going to, you know, improve polycystic ovary syndrome because it's really kind of, it's a syndrome that comes from that kind of ovarian production of these hormones um, and the multiple follicles that are there. Um, and so actually the other thing which naturally um, makes PCOS a whole lot better is if you're in aging and just getting older uh, because the follicles become atretic, there are fewer and fewer eggs around. And so, you know, that's kind of depressing for some of us, but um, 
for <laughs> patients with PCOS, they might actually find that all of a sudden their cycles are kind of getting more regular. Um, and that could kind of, that could signal um, that their ovaries are just aging. And, you know, in this case, it's not, not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, both, both, yeah, it's a great point. I will add to, I guess, the surgery point. Um, you know, initially people were doing wedge resections of the ovary, which really wasn't a wedge resection. You would cut, you basically just remove half the ovary uh, when, when they were doing that. And, and essentially, when you're doing the ovarian drilling, you're, you're just damaging the fecal cells, and, 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 the, and so you're, de you're lowering the androgen levels that the that the ovary is producing. You're, that's how you're helping, right? Um, and hope and you know, going back to lifestyle changes and, and weight loss, I, I don't want people to think that we don't promote that, right? So if, if certainly if someone is, is obese um, with PCOS, one of the first things we're going to say is, you know, lifestyle changes, right? You, you need to have um, a better diet, exercise routine if possible. But I think I, I also talk to my patients with, with PCOS, it's difficult for patients to lose weight sometimes. You know, not everyone can lose weight very easily. And so it's not something there where we make them do anything, but, but we always want to suggest that if, you're, if you don't have a proper diet, have a better one. If you don't have an exercise routine, get one. You know, you don't have to, you know, start running a marathon or anything, but you just need to do something to make yourself a little bit healthier if possible. And, and that may or may not help your fertility, but it also, but it may, in fact, help your pregnancy if you are pregnant. The healthier you are going into a pregnancy, the better off you're going to be. And so I always kind of explain that to them as well. But I don't necessarily tell them to, you know, exercise and diet for six months and come back to us, because the benefit of for, for to fertility is probably very minimal, if any. Uh, with that so but definitely there is a pregnancy benefit for, for patients and the other thing is there's no diet that's that's really recommended it's just you know a, a healthy well-balanced diet you know so you know decrease your calories in some way if you eat a lot of sweets stop if you eat a lot of meat red meat stop we're not stop but cut back right it, it's hard to make big changes to a diet you have to really make small changes that, that people can then you know live with for a long period of time. Right. And it's also important that um, it's really the dietary pattern and, and not one thing. So people are like, what should I eat or not eat? There isn't one one thing. Um, one one type of dietary pattern that kind of sticks out that is a little bit easier to follow in our part of the world is the Mediterranean diet. I know we're not in the Mediterranean, but, um, you know, uh, it's it's sort of one of those things that makes really a lot of logical sense. So um, low carbs, but not no carbs, lots of leafy greens, lean meats, um, lots of vegetables, uh, um, oily fish like salmon, um, uh, olive oil, balsamic vinegar, instead of kind of heavy salad dressings, um, and um, red wine, if you're going to drink alcohol, uh, not when you're pregnant, of course, although they probably do that in um, the Mediterranean. Um, so that that's the kind of thing you have to think about is just sort of a little bit changing the pattern altogether and not necessarily cutting completely cutting something out. And, and, it, ha and it has to be, unfortunately, it has to be a diet that we got to live with long term, it can't be a short term kind of thing. Um, one supplement that patients always ask about myonositol, um, which is a, a supplement that may be similar to metformin in some studies. Um, 
So that is something that appears to be safe and kind of okay to try for, for people who have um, polycystic ovary syndrome, especially metformin can have a lot of um, kind of side effects. Um, I yeah, have to run and do a procedure. Sorry, I have to run and do a procedure. Um, so I'm going to go do that um, and leave you guys to it. I did want to mention that there was uh, there was a patient here who's trying to schedule a consultation. Um, so we can we can reach out. But I just because I know lots of people see this. Um, this patient uh, was mentioning that she's trying to call to schedule a free consultation. Um, so we don't necessarily have free consultations. Uh, we have consultations that are typically covered by most insurance plans, um, including many of the um, Aloha Care Quest plans as well. So um, certainly uh, we can help you schedule that, but I didn't want people to kind of see that and think that um, we have free consultations. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks for joining <laughs> us. All right. So Dr. Goulet, now you and I get to talk. All right. <laughs> um, I, I want to make, I want to comment about the inositol and maybe you can too, because you know, you're, you're much, much younger than I am. And, and, you know, it was not, we were not necessarily using it during my residency and fellowship, but, but I do know that, that it's, it, it's something that has kind of taken on and a lot, a lot of patients will ask about it. Um, there were there were two recent you know there are lots of studies on it but two recent Cochrane reviews which really didn't show that you know it was really useful in improving pregnancy rates or by birth rates or decreasing miscarriage risk or anything else with for patients with subfertility um, but it may have some other some benefits you know for you know like metformin and the metabolic profile. Right. And I, I even came across one of the studies that suggested continuing that throughout pregnancy may help lower the incidence of gestational diabetes, similar to how metformin works. So myo-inositol or inositol, it's available over the counter. It's easy to take. It comes in a powder form. You can add it to your yogurt or your oatmeal or your juice. I see it's often included in a lot of the fertility supplements now. So if you're buying a fertility supplement over the counter, it's uh, along with folate and a lot of other ingredients, that's usually one of those that they list in it. People tolerate it very well. I don't have my patients coming back and complaining of the side effects of it. And it's, so it's one of the easier supplements to take. I think that it's, it's certainly worth trying, but even though there have been some studies and some meta-analyses on it, it hasn't been rigorously studied in large double-blinded randomized control trials. So we can't really say, is it effective or not? Right. Um, and, and I think the, you, you may not remember this, um, but I think I was maybe in, in fellowship when it happened. Uh, the, when the paper first, one of the paper, first papers for metformin came out, looking at the, and, and saw that there was a huge decrease in pregnancy loss, early pregnancy loss for people who are on metformin as opposed to who aren't on metformin, which is why metformin really started taking off for, for fertility. And, and um, But subsequent studies show that really that's not the case, that the, the two groups, of the two groups, there is a very high miscarriage risk in, in the patients who weren't on, on metformin for some reason. And that's not what we typically see with, with patients with PCOS. Uh, and so that when, when other studies were done, they were a little bit better controlled we found is that yeah there's really not that effect because initially they were saying we should keep 
metformin on for the first trimester to lower that effect. And, and again, that the data were so compelling initially that a lot of people started doing that until other studies kind of came out. I don't know. Do you remember that? And you probably were in grade school at that time or, or even well, when I entered training, um, metformin was not one of our go-to medications to keep pregnant women on to treat their diabetes or their gestational diabetes. However, I have seen the, the pendulum swing a little bit. Uh, you, it, insulin is always the gold standard for treating diabetes in pregnancy, whether that be gestational diabetes that's um, uncontrolled or uh or diabetes that was diagnosed prior to pregnancy. But I think metformin, it's much much easier to take than the injectable insulin. And so uh, I, I have seen that there has been uh, another favorable swing back to the metformin because it is the only oral medication that we do have some safety data on as far as it being okay for the fetus. It is, I believe, a class B in pregnancy. There was another oral medication that we were using more often that's pretty much gone by the wayside now. And so uh, for individuals who uh, aren't uh, very good or um, have a hard time with taking the insulin and aren't very out of control, the metformin may be a better um, way to treat that. And so we see higher incidences of gestational diabetes in pregnancy and diabetes in pregnancy in our PCOS patients because of that insulin resistance that often accompanies PCOS. I guess just, and I guess we can, we can kind of wrap it up with just a few final comments. Uh, it, one thing is, you know, what we, you know, we, we do fertility. Uh, and so for people who are looking to get pregnant, oftentimes PCOS patients, there's a high prevalence of, of a PCOS, a PCOS patients seeing us because of that. And, and it's important to realize that there's a lot of different ways they can get pregnant. They can get pregnant naturally. Uh, we can give them hormones just to help them ovulate better. Um, but, you know, and also, likewise, there's only so many ways to get pregnant, to get the egg and sperm together, right? So there's there's intercourse for a heterosexual couple, there's intrauterine inseminations, putting sperm into the uterus, and there's IVF. And certainly PCOS patients kind of will get treated with all, all of those uh, as well, depending on what their their other diagnoses you know, tell us or, and how they're, how they're uh, responding. Uh, and they do very well. I mean, the key, the key thing is age, it's, age, it's an age-related egg quality effect. So depending on how old they are, you know, as long as we can get the egg and sperm together, you know, they have a very good chance. Right. Nobody wants an infertility diagnosis, but if you have to have one, PCOS is the one that you want. If I had a bet on which of my patients would be most successful at achieving their pregnancy. It's the PCOS patients. Why? Oh, because they're, they are fertile myrtles. They have been saving up their eggs. They just need a little nudge in, in getting those eggs to release. And I think, you know, along that line for, you know, for my patients, you know, if they're doing, I, if they get to IVF, you know, the PCOS patients, it used to be thought, oh, the egg quality is not as good. That's really not true. Um, the quality is great and they get more eggs. And so, and with IV, as humans, we do not reproduce very well, okay? Mice produce really well. Every egg makes a pup. Um, as humans, it takes 10 to 20 eggs to make a baby on average. And so the PCOS patients, if they're doing IVF, it's a numbers game. They get more eggs, so they ultimately get cumulatively have, to have a higher success rate a lot of times. Yes. Um, Anything else to add, Dr. Delay? 
Um, I, I think we've covered a, a, most of it. I, I wasn't here for the first part. But. <laughs> well, I'm glad you were able to join us. I know you, had, you. You're, you were busy with a patient, I understand, and we understand, but thank you for joining us. And, and thank everyone for, for joining us today. This is the Ask the Docs, a Fertility Institute of Hawaii live stream. Uh, for more information, please check out our website at ivfcenterhawaii.com. Uh, if you have any additional questions, please leave them in the comments below and or contact, or contact, contact us directly. Um, and we hope you all join us again next time. Aloha.